Chapter 9. Snafu. Fairno and Bosch. Late summer 2349. Captain Vargas watches as I smoothly push the throttle to full and pull the yoke back for an easy liftoff of a Scythera 40. One of the best vessels they will let recruits fly. A significant upgrade from the old revenge models they used to train us on. I scored the pilot's seat for this, my first glitter mission. Well, not just my glitter mission. There are four other almost-to-graduation recruits on board as well. Lance Moreau as navigator, David Simon as left gunner, Michelle Romero as flight engineer, and Aiden Sawyer as right gunner. We make up what is referred to as a unit. Lance and Aiden are the pretty privileged boys, who always want to be first in everything, and who have the dubious distinction of having taunted me at every opportunity when I was still the worst recruit. They have quieted a bit, now that I float in the middle of the class in everything but flying. I don't know David well, but he is apparently a charter member of the Lance fan club. And Michelle, who has never been particularly warm with me, is really smart usually, but she seems to lose her brain around Aiden. I'm not sure how I got placed in this rarefied unit, but I suspect it has to do with my flight skills, which have come along very nicely, in no small part to Teddy taking me up on my days off and letting me fly some of his special vessels under his watchful eye. This is essentially our final exam, an actual mission before graduation next week. Nice smooth takeoff, Wallace. Vargas nods. I smile a bit inwardly, but take a breath and focus on flying as my navigator adjusts our course under Vargas's watchful eye. He makes his way around the airship, which the Bosch call vessels, apparently. Vehicles in the water are ships, vehicles in the air are vessels, and vehicles on land are just, I don't know, vehicles? Vargas watches us carefully in this vessel, assessing the competency and readiness of each of us at our stations. We only are flying a very short distance to the lee side of the very large island of Ferno to drop off a glitter shipment, but I'll take any opportunity to fly. When I lift off, it feels like all my worries just slide away to the surface, leaving a new, clean, freer cat. And being able to see a new country and travel so easily beyond Bosch, even for a little while, gives me flutters of excitement in my stomach. Vargas is average in every way. A middle-aged man, average height and build, with basic brown skin and hair. He is in fact so average that he might have been unnoticeable, save for his self-confidence, which is anything but average. His self-confidence is so above average, it treads heavily into arrogance and plays with its compatriot, condescension. But now he is back at my side when it is time to land in Fairno and nods approvingly as I set the vessel down with only a few bumps. I maneuver it to the area he indicates for parking. He reminds us that we are representing the Bosch Pirate Force and to focus on being businesslike and culturally sensitive. The people of Ferno don't physically touch in public. However, they prefer to be addressed and to address others by their first names. Typically, only two or three of you would actually go to the exchange. It is essential to always leave a unit member or two with the vessel in case a mission goes awry. However, we have dealt with the people of Ferno and Madame Amelie Coates for many years. She is most hospitable to indulge our recruit missions. We nod and hear the implicit caution to not offend. Then David and Aiden pick up the glitter cases, and we descend the cargo ramp to meet with our Fairno connection. We are escorted into the sitting room of a lovely large home. We have been driven from the airfield in a very comfortable vehicle by a quiet man who was polite but distant as he opened the doors of the vehicle for us and saw us into the home in this magnificent room. 
The ceilings are high, and one wall is almost all windows looking out over a green slope to the ocean. There are two cream-colored sofas and two large upholstered chairs set off with pillows and shades of blues and greens. A table sits in the center with a basket of flotsam from the ocean, sea stars and driftwood, and what looks to be a glass ball of some kind, also in a sea-green shade. The walls hold paintings of the sea and old ships, and there's a light fixture hanging from the ceiling that resembles coral. Captain Vargas stands behind the five of us as we all gaze at the room. A young woman with deep brown hair and soft golden brown skin with eyes that are almost topaz comes in and nods to us. Madam Coates will be just a few moments. She asks that you make yourself comfortable. Then she steps out. We all take seats, but I'm a bit confused, so I turn to Captain Vargas. I thought the Farino preferred to be addressed by their first names. By their equals, yes. The answer makes me wrinkle my brow. What does that mean? He begins to answer, but the door opens, and the young woman is back, holding the door for an older woman dressed in a gown of oceanic blues and greens, with a small sea star hair clip holding back her yellow hair. Sebastian. She floats over to Captain Vargas and smiles at him. How delightful to see you again. The young woman keeps up with her and makes sure her dress is smooth when she stops moving. Something about that motion makes me uncomfortable. He stands and nods. Hello, Amelie. Always a pleasure. Your travel was easy, and these are this season's recruits? She smiles indulgently. Do introduce me. Captain Vargas makes the introductions around the room. I nod politely, as do the other members of the unit. Madam Coates, excuse me, Amelie, and Captain Vargas begin to walk about the room, chatting in earnest about the weather, the F.A., the shocking increase in food prices from the mainlands. The young woman keeps pace with them, continuing to fuss with her mistress's gown. Her mistress? Is she a hired girl or something else? I have to find out. As the captain and Amelie come near my seat, I rise as the young woman comes in range and address her directly. Hello, I'm Kat. What's your name? Her face freezes and she glances toward Amelie, who looks at me with a slightly furrowed brow, but then her face relaxes and she nods benignly at the woman with the barest hint of a smile. There is a pause as the younger woman looks at me. Rosalind? I'm called Rosalind. I smile. Like from As You Like It, the ancient play? I just read that one. I'm delighted with the name. Rosalind looks at me without any indication of understanding. Amelie jumps in, addressing me. I do love Shakespearean names. How delightful that you recognized it. She smiles warmly at me now. The driver who brought you in, we named Othello. And we have a wonderful gardener called Snug. Her voice is proud and excited. I feel sick to my stomach. I open and close my mouth. Thrall names. Those are thrall names. The enslaved lose their real name when they gain their brand. They are called Snug or whatever name their enslaver chooses to give them. I can hear my heart beating in my ears as the word thrall echoes in my mind. Well, shall we conduct our business then? I hear Captain Vargas's voice far away. I shake my head and try to focus. As a pilot, I was supposed to lead the negotiations, but now I am in no place to dicker. I put a hand on the back of the sofa as if feeling something concrete may help this make sense. And then I look at Lance and give a small jerk of my head. He is only too happy to step up and take the spotlight. I walk to the wall of windows and look out at the pastoral scene. The well-landscaped beds frame a rolling green lawn. A lawn. I practically scoff out loud. 
It must take so much fresh water to maintain it. Ridiculous extravagance. I hear the negotiations distantly from where I stand. Captain Vargas comes up next to me. Is there a problem, Wallace? I turn my head slowly and consider how to tell him. I know he will be as appalled as I am. Captain? I say in as low of a whisper as I can manage. Rosalind and Othello and Snug are not their real names. Those are thrall names. They are enslaved. Vargas looks unconcerned. It's customary for slaveholders to change their thralls' names when they purchase them. What? My voice is no longer a whisper. It is loud enough to silence the almost completed negotiations. Recruit, modulate your voice, please. Vargas's voice has the edge of warning to it as he leans toward me. No, I will not. My voice begins to shake, but actually becomes louder as I gesture toward Amelie. Are you telling me you know? You know that she is an enslaver. Amelie looks at me with shock as she rises from her seat and sweeps toward us. What is all this about, Sebastian? Now, Amelie, Vargas's voice takes on a cajoling tone. Not everyone is as worldly as you and I. She is young and inexperienced in the world. Then he says conspiratorially to Amelie, After all, she is from the North Country. The two of them laugh. I jump in. I'm not that young, and I don't think believing that people should not be owned by other people is idealistic. Amelie frowns and gestures at me. Is this girl so backwater and ignorant to not know how the world works? Ever since the fires and the great flooding and the pandemics, there's been a shortage of workers, especially in coastal areas. We must make do as we must. We import workers. How would we survive without them? To keep other people enslaved is evil and wrong. It always has been. My voice is now quieter but stronger. I'm looking directly at her. Then I turn to Rosalind. You should come with us. Bosch does not keep slaves. You'd be free there. I hear a small gasp from Madame Coates, and to my surprise, Rosalind's eyes go wide. She begins to shake her head back and forth, then turns and runs from the room. Now see what you've done, you foolish girl. Amelie's voice is scolding and scornful. Poor little Rosalind will likely be hiding under her bed by now. We treat our thralls quite well, thank you. They're like family to us. They would never try to leave. No, you've made her dependent on you and fearful of anything else. I snap back at her. It's no different than clipping a songbird's wings. Amelie presses her lips together and her face flushes under her pale makeup. Sebastian, I would like you to remove this, this troublemaker from my home. She does not bring credit to the Bosch brand. Yes, Amelie, immediately. He gestures for me to head to the door, but my stubborn streak is activated, and I hold my position. What's wrong? Have I touched a nerve? Are you concerned that without your enslaved workers, you couldn't afford this lavish lifestyle? I wave my arm in the air, taking in the elegant sitting room. Amelie gasps, and quick as a wink, her hand comes up and slaps my face. She looks horrified. Nicely played, Madame Coates. I deliberately use her last name to insult her. I figure she has already broken the no-touching rule, so the game is on. I will not forget this. Then Captain Vargas is at my side, grasping my arm and hustling me to the door and down the steps to the waiting vehicle. He practically tosses me inside, opening the door himself as Othello is nowhere to be seen. Don't move from there, that's an order. His face is carved in lines of fury, but his voice is remarkably calm. He returns to the house. 
I kick at the door after he closes it, but keep my seat. I crane my head trying to look out the window, both toward the house and away from it. I want to get out and find Othello and Snug, and any of the others, and insist they run with me. But it's not just Vargas. None of my unit seems upset by the reveal of enslavement. Perhaps they don't understand. I'll explain it to them. I can't believe that Bosch has been dealing with this person for years. What a repulsive woman, and not as well-read as she'd like me to think. After all, Snug was a joiner, not a gardener. Several minutes pass. Then the door to the villa opens, and the unit and Vargas step out, holding marker cases. I see Captain Vargas speak intently to Madame Coates, who dabs at her eyes with a piece of lace. Ridiculous. Then the unit files into the vehicle, and none of them look nor speak to me. I hear the driver's door open, and Othello, or whatever his real name is, slides in. He looks into the mirror that sits in the center of the front window. His hazel eyes find mine, and he gives me a small nod. The moment is interrupted as Vargas slides in and turns his seat to face me, as not Othello starts the motor, and we head back to the vessel. He looks at me intently, speaking in his average voice. The marker cases, recruit Wallace, are a little lighter than expected as we had to negotiate from a position of weakness to which I'm not accustomed. Still, you are fortunate that Madame Coates is an understanding client. Understanding? Are you kidding me? Captain, how can you tolerate slaveholders? Bosch doesn't keep thralls. We have glitter to move. We cannot be the conscience of every person, island, and nation in New Earth. Hell, Wallace, even the F.A. has some countries that allow slavery. He punctuates his comments with his hands. That doesn't make it right. Aren't the Bosch pirates? Pirates who used to be enslaved? And who then used to free thralls? I'm starting to ramp up again. Aiden gives a disgusted huff next to me and says in a very condescending tone, Cat, you were just overreacting. Those thralls seemed perfectly happy until you started a ruckus. Lance follows up in his languid tone. You could have ruined the mission for all of us. My head whips around to face Aiden and I lean in. I am decidedly not overreacting, Aiden. If anything, I am underreacting. I should have pulled my weapon. Okay, I wouldn't have pulled a weapon, but his tone really gets under my skin. Then I turn to Lance. And you, poor baby. New Earth knows that offering freedom to enslaved people might just spoil your perfect day and endanger your coveted honor ribbon. Lance is all but certain to be top graduate of the class. I turn back to Aiden. Believe me, they aren't happy. My right hand goes to my sleeve-covered left forearm. Michelle chimes in with an artificial sweetness to her voice. Like you know everything, Cat. You live a pretty cushy life as the MC's pet. The vehicle is suddenly silent as that last comment, which I've heard whispered many times behind my back and off to the side as I walk by, is finally fully born. Even Vargas is silent, and no one is looking at me at all now. I sit back and seethe. So what if I get along with Teddy? So what if I live at his and Miriam's house? I imagine they think they've hurt me with that comment, but what they've done has made me think. If recruits and Captain Vargas tolerate doing business with slavers, then likely everyone in the force does. Then I remember that Teddy was dropping glitter to him when I stowed away. I sit and grow more furious by the moment as slowly the vehicle begins to fill with congenial talk and laughter that excludes me. Vargas is relaxing as well, though I see him throw a cautious glance my way now and then. The vehicle stops at the airfield and the unit rolls out. David calls back. 
Get the marker cases, will you, cat? The group laughs and heads to the vessel. I'm working hard to keep my anger contained. I don't want to unleash it until I get back to Bosch. I go to the back of the vehicle to get the cases and Othello stands there. With a quick glance toward the others, he reaches out and pulls up my left sleeve. Uh-huh. Thought so. He says it quietly as he turns his arm toward me, showing a similar brand. It's not so bad here. I mean, I've been other places worse. But it still isn't freedom. He again glances over to the vessel. My name is Carl. He stood a little straighter as he gave me his real name. I felt tears prick at the edge of my eyes. I'm Cat, Cat Wallace. You could come, you know. I keep my voice low. He gives me a sad smile. The girl they call Rosalind, actually Beth, is my daughter, so I stay with her. But you keep fighting the fight for all of us, Cat Wallace. He reaches out and squeezes my arm over my brand. I nod, seeing the resemblance in his face now, blink back tears, and add this injustice to the fire of my anger. I manage to choke out. Thank you for trusting me with your names. I squeeze his arm in return, and then hump the heavy marker cases to the vessel where Captain Vargas is standing and watching me. I walk onto the vessel and stow the cases. Vargas has moved Lance to the pilot's seat, and Lance looks smug and victorious. Vargas motions me to the jump seat as he turns to take the navigator's post. I sigh and calmly walk back to the flight engineer's post. Michelle? I call her name as sweetly as I can. She turns toward my voice, and I pop her hard in the head with a rear hook. She drops like a stone. As chaos erupts around me, I walk back to the jump seat and sit down, fastening my seatbelt. I close my eyes to keep the rest of my anger in check for after we land. The moment we land, I'm up and moving. I ignore Vargas's call for me to sit down, and I slam the button that opens the cargo ramp and practically gallop down it. My ears are buzzing, and there are red spots floating in front of my eyes. I feel my hands open and close in fists as I make my way to Bosch Hall. My jaw is so tight it's starting to hurt. I push past the guard at the door, again ignoring demands that I stop. When he grabs my arm at the entrance to the stairs, I give him a hard shove, then pull open the door and take the stairs two and three at a time. Finally, on the third floor, I hustle down the hallway to the second office on the right, grabbing the knob on the frosted glass door. Betsy, Teddy's assistant, and one of the kindest people I've met here outside of Teddy and Miriam, sits in her usual seat in the front office, effectively guarding the solid wood entry to the master commander's office. Well, Kat, you certainly didn't sneak in today. I've had comms starting from the airfield all the way to poor Roberts downstairs. He thinks you might have bruised him a bit. Am I going to suffer the same fate? Her smile never wavers. No, I'm saving that. Somehow I can't get my anger to extend to Betsy. Well, he's in a meeting, though I expect you don't care. I maneuver around her desk, and she makes no attempt to stop me. Nope, not in the least. I open the door and see six men sitting around the large wooden general's table that sits behind the highly polished mahogany desk. The master commander turns his head my way and stands up as I stomp into the room. Cat, I'm in a meeting here. I ignore the statement. What the fuck, Teddy? You run glitter to places with enslaved people and do nothing to free them? My eyes are wide and spit leaps from my lips as I yell. 
Teddy looks at me and then closes his eyes. I see his chest rise as he takes a very deep breath. Recruit, we can discuss the morality of our economy at a later time. For now, you need to get a hold of yourself and stand down. The last two words are said a bit louder and sharper than the rest, but I am having none of it. Oh, I'll get a hold of myself. I'll get a hold of a vessel and fly it back there and get them out. One of the men, a general, this one with broad shoulders and neatly trimmed black hair, with a smattering of gray at the temples, begins to grin. My head jerks toward him. What the hell is so funny? My anger is big enough to take him into it as well as Teddy. Teddy looks genially at the smiling man. Careful, Miles. She knows how to shoot now. A ripple of subdued laughter comes from those around the table. This comment made in such a cool, calm tone, and the chummy laughter cuts into me, and my chest becomes tighter. I feel my teeth grind. My voice escalates. You old men sit around this table and know nothing about what the world is like outside of Bosch. People are enslaved. They are being worked and tortured and tormented and killed. And somehow, we are selling glitter to their tormentors. I jerk the sleeve up on my left arm showing my thrall brand and hold it out. I wasn't going to hide it anymore. Five pairs of eyes are on it, but Teddy looks right at my face. I know what they suffer, I continue. You told me the Bosch are descended from escaped thralls. Slavery doesn't exist here. But apparently, you can ignore it elsewhere if it fills your coffers. So good for you and your fat wallets. Hypocrites. I glance at the now sober faces and again register the six men sitting comfortably around the large oval wood table. Now I'm angry for an entirely different reason. And why is it there are only men sitting here? I hear an awful lot of lofty words about equality in Bosch. Maybe that ought to be a consideration at the top? There is a pause and Teddy's face is inscrutable. I'm sure I've gotten through to them, finally. Recruit Wallace. Teddy's voice is as calm and collected as always. This is a meeting for the general's table. And those are the only voices that matter here. His voice takes on an edge. This is not a forum for any yet-to-be-graduated recruit to air their particular grievances. You will stand down and take yourself to your barracks. His eyes are fiery as he looks at me, and his mouth is in a tight line. I've never seen him angry before. There will undoubtedly be consequences for your insubordinate behavior. I feel like I've been punched hard in the gut. I thought he would be on my side. I open my mouth to protest, and he puts a hand up. Recruit? You are a single word away from a court-martial, which I'm not even sure has ever happened with a recruit. Do not push me. His voice hasn't raised in volume nor pace, but the power behind it is clear. Either I comply, or I am gone. I've worked too fucking hard these past weeks to fail now. But this isn't over. I set my jaw and reply the only two words I know are acceptable. Yes, sir. I move to attention pose and my right fist goes automatically to my chest. I wait for his dismissal, which comes in a hand wave. I turn and move toward the heavy wooden door, open it, and pull it closed behind me. Betsy looks at me with what I choose to believe is sympathy. I take a breath and walk out of the office and down the two flights of stairs to the main door. I murmur an apology to Sergeant Roberts and head to my barracks room. Fat lot of good being MC's pet did for me today.